now more than ever, people need to go within and plug into that cellular memory, plug into divine source, detach as much as possible from the matrix. Hello again, everybody. This is James Bartley, and you're listening to the Cosmic Switchboard Show. My special guest today is William S. English. Uh, William S. English is a former Army Special Forces member. He served in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War, and he also came into possession during his time at a uh, I think it was an Air Force security service, but William can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, listening post in England uh, after his time in Vietnam, where he came into possession of what became known as the Project 13, uh, rather the Project Grudge 13 report, which to me is it one was, of the... Oh, please go ahead. It, it, was, it was entitled Grudge Blue Book 13. Grudge Blue Book Grudge 13. Grudge slash Blue Book 13. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. And so uh, without any further ado, William, please give our listeners uh, a background of who you are. I think it may help to mention your father because he, he was apparently was in the Arizona State Legislature, was a well-connected individual in his own right, and then you wound up in Army Special Forces. So please, uh, the floor is yours, but please let our listeners know about your background, how you came into all this. Well, um, I guess starting at the beginning really is the best way to do it. Uh, I was uh, born in Alamogordo, New Mexico, which is about 15 miles away from uh, White Sands uh, National Park and about 50 miles away from White Sands Proving Grounds. Um, And uh, I left. New Mexico when I was about seven years old. My mom and dad got divorced. Uh, dad went to Arizona where he was born and and raised. Uh, mom remarried. We went out to California. I went to a military academy uh, called Harding Military Academy of the 141st Regiment of the California Cadet Corps. Uh, which uh, I don't know if the school is still open or not. I don't believe it is. But uh, when I was about 17 years old, I joined the United States Army. Uh, Went through uh, basic training at Fort Bliss in Texas, which is about 80 miles away, uh, away from where I'm at now. And um, when I uh, completed basic training, I was supposed to uh, become an aircraft mechanic and was uh, temporarily stationed at Fort Rucker, Alabama, where the uh, Army uh, Aviation uh, uh, Maintenance School was located at. And waited there for several several weeks, uh, went to a flight physical and told that I was colorblind. And I hadn't realized it at the time, but I had a guaranteed enlistment. So they, I could have gotten out of the Army then, and if I had any sense, I probably should have, but 
I, I didn't. And I was sent over to, uh, army recruiting recruitment office, uh, to change my, uh, MOS. And, uh, First thing, first thing, of course, he did was uh, tear up my guarantee and list my card, and then uh, very directly tell me where I was going and what I would do. And you'd think at the time that they would have just dropped me into infantry and left it at that, but they didn't. Uh, they sent me to uh, Aberdeen Proving Grounds in Maryland to become a 45 Bravo 20, which is a small arms repairman. And then, oddly enough, from there, they sent me to Fort Benning, Georgia, to uh, airborne school. And from airborne school, they sent me to Fort Polk, Louisiana, where I began uh, training in uh, uh, special operations, uh, which is kind of weird because at the same time, I uh, transferred I went straight from private zero to uh, Sergeant E5. And back in those days, you couldn't get into special forces unless you were an E5 or above. Um, And, uh, you know, I found that I enjoyed the work uh, and... uh, I might mention at this point that uh, I did not graduate from high school at that time. And while I was in basic training, I was offered officer's candidate school until they discovered that I was not a high school graduate. And uh, it occurred to me then that it would probably be a good idea to get my uh, high school diploma, which I did. Um but, uh, and, and you got to remember these, this is over 45, almost 50 years ago. And, um, I, um, uh, was sent from Fort, uh, Fort Polk, Louisiana to, uh, jungle operations training course, eight special forces. Uh, in Panama, and then from Panama, I was sent to Southeast Asia, Fifth uh, Corps Special Forces, Fifth and the Seventh, uh, where I worked as uh, a striker, which essentially is a sharpshooter, um, and. Um, on uh, two occasions, I received a battlefield commission to uh, uh, first lieutenant and then to captain. And from um, there, I did various unsundry assignments, which some of which we won't talk about. But um, and my dad, bless his little heart, who passed the. Uh, about two years ago, uh, was a member of the Arizona State Legislature, uh, District 9, and uh, he was also uh, 
a former uh, electronics engineer out at White Sands Proving Grounds, and um, also a um, electronics engineer at Cape Canaveral, and uh, in later years, as, as time and our relationship improved, uh, he would tell me stories about UFOs at Cape Canaveral and out of White Sands, and uh, I would tell him some of the stuff I had. He still maintained a top secret, top secret clearance uh, right up to the day he died. And, uh, you know, at this point, I, I, I really don't know what to say. There were certain things that happened while I was in uh, Southeast Asia. And uh, uh, eventually, I got out of the service in Europe. Uh, both my older children uh, were born to, born overseas, and uh, my then wife, uh, God rest her soul, um, uh, uh, school for the Department of Defense school systems. And uh, ultimately, we uh, landed in England, and she was assigned to RAF Chicksands, which was at the time a, uh, a U.S. Air Force um, listening post. And uh, I was eventually hired as a data analyst. In fact, I was invited uh, uh, to become a data analyst by the NSA. And uh, it was here, while performing my regular duties and analyzing data that we uh, garnered from uh, the listening post and assigning probabilities uh, of accuracy to it, as to the information that uh, I encountered, um, Grudge Blue Book 13. And my world went to hell very shortly after that. Back in Southeast Asia, you were involved in of securing what you presumed to be a crash site because you and your team were advised that there was a, a B-52 that was having problems in flight and, and apparently that they were being interfered with in some way. Did you want to talk about that incident or would you rather? Yeah, we can talk about it. In, in point of fact, my team, which was a 10-man uh, alpha team, was assigned the duty of going in and finding a crashed B-52, determining the exten exten extenuating circumstances of, of, the, uh, of the crash, whether or not the aircraft had been destroyed enough to hide secret uh, uh, equipment, documents, um, and determine what had happened to the personnel on board 
And originally, we thought that we were just going to go in and verify a crash and uh, determine whether or not there were dog tags to be collected and uh, get the hell out of there. And what time frame was this and what part of uh, Southeast Asia did this occur at? Well, we were flown to the Cambodian border. And we crossed the Cambodian border on foot and about 10, 15 clicks across the border, uh, we found the crash site. And um, it was pretty weird. Uh, what we came on was a fully intact B-52 aircraft that looked like it had just been grabbed out of the sky and gently put down on the ground. There was no crash. There was no sign of a crash. Um, you know, there was no crash trail or anything like that, which we thought was pretty odd to begin with. And we managed to gain entry through one of the emergency escape hatches where we found the entire crew still strapped in their seats, mutilated like cattle, tongues were missing. Um, closer examination showed that, uh, you know, jaws were, you know, scraped clean. Um, one of the, uh, one of my guys took, uh, one of the bodies out of the seat and discovered that, uh, his rectum and, uh, genitals had been literally cored out like a, you know, like a biscuit cutter had been used. Uh, we found the bomb bay was still full of bombs. Nowadays, you'd say the creep factor started to set in. So we set charges in the Bombay, uh, in the nose of the aircraft to make sure that the avionics were destroyed, the engines. We even set bombs on the tail. And uh, got the hell out of there fast as we could. We collected dog tags to be turned in when we got back to uh, our headquarters. And uh, we uh, um, retreated about a half a mile away and used the radio signal to set off the charges. And uh, we made sure that everything went off. Uh, the biggest explosion was, of course, the Bombay when we finally set the, the detonator on the on the on the Bombay because it exploded all the ordnance that was loaded in the Bombay. But uh, all of our bombs showed that they went off at the time. And. Uh, in the process of all of this, we had taken photographs of, of everything we found. And uh, 
we got the hell out of there. And uh, we made it to our uh, extraction point. And we were extracted back to MACD headquarters in Saigon. We turned over uh, all of our films, all the documents, maps, and everything else that we had uh, collected. And uh, uh, that was the last we heard of it. And life carried on, and we kept doing what we did. Was there any kind of uh, special debriefing after that mission? Were you uh, told not to discuss it? Yeah, we were basically told uh, you will die if you disclose any of this information. So keep your traps shut. Ultimately, I was the only individual out of the original uh, strike team that survived Southeast Asia. Uh, everybody else died in action. And, uh, you know, I carried a lot of, uh, I don't know, I, there, there was a lot of PTSD involved at the time. And, uh, very shortly after that, I was uh, uh, discharged from the service after doing two tours in Vietnam. And uh, by this time, I had met my my wife, Stephanie, and uh, in Germany, and we got married. And uh, I got discharged in Europe and stayed in Europe for several years and then ultimately wound up at Jigsaw. If I understand you correctly, you were a data analyst, but you were a civilian, were you, were you a contractor? Civilian employee for the uh, NSA. Okay. And uh, basically data analysis, was this a comment SIGINT facility that they were collecting? Well, uh, what, what it was is that they would collect information and data compare it to other information and data and then send it to me. I would compare the two and then we would go and look at, you know, say for example, um, we would get a signal that uh, Boris has just gone to uh, Guam. Then we get another signal that said uh, Boris has returned from Guam. Then we would look at a different source of information that showed this individual had disappeared from this location at this time and reappeared at the same location at another time and would determine whether or not that was Boris or or not. And it was my job to do the comparisons and checks and uh, assign what they call the probability rating. And, uh, and uh, oh, please continue. No, go ahead. I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I don't want to yeah. interrupt your flow. I'm just curious. Um, if you can say, what what was your clearance level at this point? Uh, above top secret. Okay. 
and security clearances have uh, changed over the years, but at the time, I think I called it an ultra. You would analyze diverse sources of information, and then you would make a probability assessment on uh, the reliability or the likelihood of of, of such information. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. How long were you there before the grudge report wound up on your desk? Um, I guess I was there for uh, about a year and a half. Take us through that process of, of, you know, you just show up to work like any other day and then, and then that winds up there. And then your understanding at the time of what grudge and what blue book and all that was all about. And then, you know, the contents of, of this report, which were quite startling to say the least. Uh, please, you have the floor, William. Well, first of all, I had absolutely no knowledge whatsoever of what UFOs were. And, uh, you know, no information that I, I could recall at that time. And uh, what would happen is, is that my daily assignments would generally appear on my desk before I arrived to work and went through the uh, entry process. And then uh, I would go in at my desk and crack open the envelopes and, and file folders and whatever, read what was there, look at you know what was the information that we had available on certain topics, sign a probability rating, and then drop it on my uh, superior's desk and uh, go back, do it all over again. And at the end of the day, find out, get searched, make sure I didn't have any documents or anything like that with me, and went home. I had dinner with the family and watched uh, BBC or whatever was on television. And we didn't watch an awful lot of television because of the fact that you had to buy, at that time, he had to buy a TV license in England. And uh, they got to be pretty expensive at times. So did a lot of reading and stuff. My wife got pregnant with my eldest son in, while we were in Germany. And uh, then she got pregnant with my uh, youngest son when we were in England. One day I came in and there was a, uh, what appeared to be a diplomatic pouch on my desk. So I called the sergeant at arms who uh, verified the, that it was a diplomatic pouch, popped the seal, signed off that he had popped the seal, pulled out the contents, handed them over to me and I sat down and began reading the documents and analyzing them. And uh, the document that was pulled out of the pouch was a gray uh, manual type, massive, massive, I mean thick, thick document in a book form. 
you know, like a technical manual. Uh, and across the front of it, it said grudge slash project blue book number 13. And I began reading this thing and looking at the photographs that were included in it. I had no reference material whatsoever uh, except for the photographs. But the one thing that struck me was that there was a couple of photographs in there that I remember aching of the B-52, which showed me that there was at least some veracity to the the document itself. And by the time I finished analyzing this thing, I had no choice but to assign a 100% probability rating to it put it back on the diplomatic pouch, turned it over to the sergeant at arms, walked with him as he delivered it to my superior, made sure my superior received it, signed off on it, and um, went home. Uh, about a week later, I was called to the base commander's office where I was told that I was no, my services were no longer required and that I was being shipped back to the States. And uh, they wouldn't give me the opportunity to call my wife to tell her what was going on or anything. And next thing I know, I'm on a special flight back to uh, the United States and ultimately Tucson, Arizona. You still retained your clearances at that point, or did they withdraw them? Yeah, they they stripped me clean of of all of my clearances, everything, and um, you know I tried to call my wife from the states, talk to her, and every time I tried to call, the number wasn't active or. Um, he wasn't available or a man answered the phone or, or, you know, it, it one thing after another until finally I just reached the point where, you know, I would write letters to her and the letters would be returned, uh, unopened address, the un, unknown. You, you mean your and, wife and that next- was working at RAF Chicksands with you, that was, had her own job there, defense related job after you were flown back to America Initially, at least, you were not able to, to reestablish comms with your wife back at the base? Right. Jeez. Right. And uh, it was several years before we were able to make contact. And, of course, by this time, she had been told that I had deserted her and that oh. I just put in a request for uh, uh, transfer immediately. And... Uh, just got on a plane with a carry-on luggage and uh, left. And uh, we didn't see each other again until my one-year-old son, who is now 18, and getting ready to enter the Air Force Academy, met me at my father's house in Tucson 
and uh, spend a couple of days uh, just trying to get to know each other. And then my uh, son, who graduated from the Air Force Academy and went into the Air Force himself, you know, many, many years before he, he would even talk to me after that. And my youngest son, who wasn't even six months old when, when this happened, I think he was two or three months old at the time this happened. He turned out to be uh, quite a young man. I say young now, he's in his 40s. And uh, he, uh, he and I talk all the time. And it's just been recently that my oldest son and I have, have started talking to each other. You know, and he asked me specifically, what about this UFO stuff? And I said, I told him flat out, and I said, it's all bullshit. Every bit of it's bullshit. I'm just guessing, but you said that in an effort to mend fences, that the fact that you'd undergone that, seen all that, was basically irrelevant compared to the importance of mending fences with your son. Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. And the reason why the reason why I said that basically was that when he was in uh, the academy, uh, he was planning on going to flight school and everything. And uh, somebody from the UFO community had discovered that he was a student at the Air Force Academy. And this individual and several others sort of laid in wait for him to come out of the gates of the school. And at that time he was uh, a junior and he would have uh, started his flight training program very shortly. But uh, anyway, they tagged him on a cold Colorado winter's day as he came out to go see his girlfriend. And, uh, got into a car accident and screwed up his back so he couldn't go through flight school. Could you repeat that last bit about the accident? What happened there? He screwed up his back uh, and was unable to go through flight school because of the back injury. Were those UFO researchers somehow responsible for that? Like they, they stalled yeah. him out or they delayed him from getting where he wanted to go or something? Well, actually, they tried to crowd him in to pull and get him to pull over so that they could interview him. Oh, that's so typical. And it was, uh, you know, it was an accident. And But I was, ultimately, I was responsible for it. He hasn't talked to me. He hadn't talked to me up until a couple of months ago. Jeez, you know, if you didn't know any better, it's whether those UFO researchers intended to or not, the, the end result was they drove a wedge between you and your son, and they made it difficult well, for him to, you know, carry out his dream. Well, I have learned that um, there are certain in individuals within the UFO, quote, unquote, investigator core um, who think their stuff don't stink. 
and uh, they'll do anything. And uh, I'm thinking back now on a particular individual who called me here in New Mexico at three o'clock in the morning. Well, let me tell you something. I don't talk to anybody at three o'clock in the morning, not even myself. But he he was writing this book and he was going to do a chapter on Grudge Blue Book 13 and he wanted my story and everything. You know, and at three o'clock in the morning, you know, I'm saying, look, you know, I don't know what you want. Uh, and, you know, he said, well, what I want is that you back up everything you're saying. And I want you to send me this, 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 and this so that I can evaluate it. And at that point, I said, mm, okay. And he gave me his address, which I promptly forgot. Hung up the phone and didn't reply to him or anything. And uh biggest laugh I got was I went to visit my dad. And uh, he had this fellow's book on the, you know, coffee table. And he had a bookmark to the place where this guy called me a fraud. Okay, and just, I said, okay, fine. Just, just to interject for a second, is this researcher now deceased? Uh, yeah. In the interest he of, in Britain. Uh, he's in Britain. Uh, it's entirely up to you, but you don't have to. But could you identify this individual? No, because I don't even remember his name. Oh, okay. But he was he was like a, a an Englishman, a, a UK researcher. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and apparently, apparently very prominent, and very well known uh, around the world as a UFO uh, investigator. Well, just to interject uh, just for a moment, because I, I don't want to interrupt your train of thought, but that modus operandi of calling you up in the middle of the night. I've seen this before. Um, I've seen this before with faux UFO researchers who are really working for the other side. They would abruptly show up unannounced at, at a witness's home at like 9, 10, 11 p.m. at night, start making all these demands and becoming disruptive. And the whole point is to be disorienting and to create, instill a sense of confusion and put the person on the back foot and try to manipulate them in some way. And it seems to me that, you know, stalking your son who really has nothing to do with your experiences and then doing this, calling well, you up and making all these demands, that smacks to me of uh, some kind of skullduggery there. Well, it, it, it does to me also, but, uh, you know, at the time, as, as I remembered, I had heard of this individual. So I did him the courtesy of listening to him and um, talking a little bit about what had happened and everything. And um, then I suddenly realized that, you know, this would be the perfect opportunity to just drop out of everything and not be bothered by these clowns anymore and try and live a normal life. 
which I have been fortunate enough to do, until John Lear got a hold of me. And well, please continue. You know, at, at, at that time, I was I was living on a pig farm in the Virginia countryside with my new wife, her two children, and working at a local radio station as an engineer. And uh, Alan Benz, who is a very old and very dear friend of mine, uh, uh, who could probably tell you a few stories um, about some of the craziness that goes on in UFOs and some of the craziness that <coughs> went on uh, with him and me and uh, APRO, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, and MUFON, and, and, you know, a whole bunch of other stuff, which is just absolutely hysterical and unbelievably ridiculous. But, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I had literally, literally dropped out of sight. At, at, at that point in my life, uh, all this other stuff that I've, I've talked to you about um, before happened long after um, John Lear and I met. Uh, John was a very, very dear friend of mine. And I... Uh, his passing was was um, very difficult. Um, John had come out to Virginia. I mean, this is a side story, but John had come out to Virginia, and we had made arrangements to meet. I told him, you know, meet me at the Lynchburg Airport. And I'll, uh, you know, I'll be, I'll be waiting for you and everything. Well, I, I, I sat next to John for almost a half an hour just watching him and, and waiting to, uh, see what he would do. And he just sat there very patiently. So finally I just tugged on his, on his sleeve and said, uh, John, I'm Bill. Uh, come with me and uh, I'll take you to where uh, we're going. And, you know, you can spend the night or whatever. And uh, we drove to my place on the pig farm. And um, we went through all of the details and everything. And he told me about Bill Cooper and and uh, you know, uh, and uh, then uh, several he invited me to be a speaker at the um, MUFON 
uh, conference that was taking place in Las Vegas in uh, 89. And uh, um, which I did. Um, I mean, yeah, you know, but at the time I, I, I decided that maybe it would be a good idea for me to just come out, throw it out and win and let it hang there. That way, you know, it was public. And if anything happened to me, you know, people would start asking questions. But, uh, John, uh, uh, had asked me to check uh, on a couple of things for his uh, uh, for an investigation that he was doing uh, concerning Area 51, and uh, I found out some stuff for him and uh, turned it over to him, and he started going with that. In my life. Very quietly calmed down. I had moved the family to uh, Alamogordo and uh, went to work for a couple of the local radio stations. And, um, you know, just uh, got on with life. And then when this uh, person called, you know, it, it, uh, all this other stuff that my son had happened and everything, and it occurred to me now was now was the perfect opportunity to get out of it and be left alone. So this guy called me a fraud, and um, I said okay, and I did, nobody called me after that. But for several years prior to that, you know, I had been telling them everything that I could remember from Grudge Flu Book 13. And it was like, nobody would take me seriously. Now all of a sudden, this last two years, everything that I had been saying or have said has come to light in some weird way or, or, or uh, you know, like, for example, that television show uh, that they had on the History Channel uh, about uh, Blue Book, Project Blue Book. And I was watching it just out of curiosity one night, and one of the, the stories that they had on there was a story which I had directly related to someone, and I can't remember who, that it had wound up on the internet. And of course it was distorted. The locations weren't correct and all this kind of stuff. And it was supposedly all tied in with area, uh, uh, area 51 and yada, yada, yada. And it just, it got to the point where, you know, I started getting a little angry because nobody seemed to be able to get their facts straight. You know, on one occasion, I was in the Air Force, a captain in the Air Force. Another occasion, I was in the Navy. And another occasion, I was in the Army. You know, it just on and on and on and on and on. And 
you're the first person who's actually called me to ask me what happened. Just to interject for a second, William, your, your information is so important and it's so timely and it fills in a lot of the blanks that other researchers have uh, come up with over the years, but yours ties in a lot of this information, which we're going to delve into in, in, in the second segment here in a little bit. But um, in, in the time we got left, could you tell me a bit about uh, like the aftermath of your relationship with, with your your first wife? Did, was she debriefed? Was she, when you finally talked to her after all that time, did she indicate that she had come under some degree of scrutiny or um, harassment or anything? Or did they uh, conduct the search of her of the house to, to look for anything? Uh, how did that play out? No. She never indicated anything to me of, of that nature other than the fact that she was pretty pissed off at me for leaving the way I did. And at that point, I had the boys sitting there wondering what kind of person I was. Uh, Michael was 16 or 17, and uh, David was 18, getting ready to start the academy, getting ready to go through Hell Week. And, uh, you know, I guess something was said. I don't know what. But she was the one who apparently uh, initiated the uh, meeting between uh, the boys and me and her just before David was to uh, enter the academy. So, I, you know, I really don't know what happened in their life. Uh, technically, we were married for 12 years before I finally filed for divorce in, uh, in Virginia. And uh, just so I understand correctly, your first wife was an American as well, or was she a, a Brit? No, she was, she was American. Okay, so she was working at REF Chicksands uh, as a an American employee, essentially. Yeah, she was a school teacher. Yes. For the uh, REF Chicksands Elementary School, which was a part of Department of Defense School Systems. That's right. Oh, so in other words, she was teaching American dependent children there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, she was a special ed teacher. Okay. You know, there's a timing uh, of the way you describe it, how it played out with this UK researcher. He showed up on the radar after you had connected with John Lear and after the 89 uh, MUFON symposium. Where was that again? In, in Vegas or in in Los Angeles somewhere? Yeah, Las, yeah, Las Vegas. Okay, so after uh, hooking up with, with John Lear, doing research together, etc., that's when this UK, UK guy showed up, and it was him and his crew that had accosted your son as he was uh, leaving the academy. I, I, don't, I don't know who it was. His book was published before David had his accident. Oh, okay. And that's, no, that's not true. His book was published after David had his accident. And in that book, he referred, he, he came right out and called you a fraud. Called me a fraud. And to be perfectly honest with you, when he did that, I breathed a sigh of relief. 
and said it was over with. Uh, you know what? Sadly, I've known of other cases where people that were uh, one in some way, shape or form were pulled into this whole UFO alien business. And after a while, they threw up their hands, too. And they said, you know what? Call me a fraud. Call me whatever. I'm over and done with it because of, you know, it's not just the government and black ops harassment of, of key witnesses, especially ones with such uh, high credibility and such a, a background as yours. But it's not just the black ops aspect, but it's the so-called UFO community, which, which is a viper's nest uh, and just full. Oh, yeah. It's a minefield that are just there to ensnare well-meaning, well-intentioned, in some cases, somewhat traumatized witnesses and just manipulate them, distort their stories, do everything possible to make them look crazy or, uh, you know, not incredible. Oh, yeah. Good example of that is I was uh, living in Tucson and, uh, you know, Steinman and I had... had, uh, a working relationship through APRO and um, um, he was probably the most hated man in APRO uh, Coral Lorenzen hated his guts with a purple passion and uh, so anything he did she would shoot down uh, saying it was all bullshit or whatever and of course the more she did that, the more popular his stuff got. Just unbelievable how jealous and how um, ridiculous people can get. Classic example of that was uh, this fellow, his name escapes me, the logger from northern Arizona who had been uh, abducted. Travis Walton. Yeah, Travis Walton. APRO had been called by a production company in uh, uh, L.A. to uh, be a guest on a show called Strange as It Seems, uh, which is, I think it was going to be CBS's answer to uh, a similar show that they had on air. And I was in the office that day doing some work on the uh, files and and looking at the uh, materials to see if I could find anything that corroborated anything I had seen or found. And and the uh, secretary that they had there part-time came back in the file room and she said, Bill, could you talk to these people? And I said, okay, uh, which... What do they want? And she said, well, they're looking for information on Travis Walton. And I said, okay. So I talked to them. And I said, yeah, what do you need? And they said, well, we're trying to get a hold of Travis Walton. And um, we'd like to uh, fly out to L.A. for the day and um, explain to you what we want to do and and all that kind of thing. And I said, okay. So they got me a ticket to LA, put me up overnight and they uh, took me in for a writer's conference, told me how much they were willing to pay Travis. And 
this, that, and the other. And I said, well, uh, I can get in contact with him, but any financial negotiations are going to have to be between you and him. And uh, they said, okay. I went back. Uh, I got Travis's uh, phone number from the uh, uh, files, called him, gave them his number, and said, you know, apparently this is what they're wanting to pay you, but I also told them that you're going to have to negotiate with him. And uh, he said, okay. And then the next thing I know, I'm getting a call from uh, the production company wanting me to come out again and uh, explain my methods of UFO investigation, which at the time were pretty uh, pretty straightforward. He negotiated with them. And, and, you know, it started out, well, we're only going to pay you $1,500. And he said, no, that's not enough. And uh, he was willing to walk. And he finally got him up to five grand. All expenses paid and everything. And um, he spent three or four days up there. And I flew back to Tucson and, uh, you know, commenced uh, keeping on, keeping on. And uh, next thing I know, I'm getting a phone call from Jim uh, Lorenzen, you know, just chewing me up one side and down the other. And I shouldn't have represented Afro and, I cost Afro a shitload of money and yada, yada, yada. Well, it occurred to me at that point that they were just in it for the money. And and they were sending and, you here and there, flying you around like like you were kind of like their errand boy in a way. It didn't sound like well, they were. Afro, really- you know, Afro had, had nothing to do with it. The... The production company was the one that was flying me around. Oh, okay. Sorry. I, I, was, I was confused about that bit. Yeah. Um, but Jim, uh, you know, when uh, he found out what was going on, he just, you know, ripped me one up, up one side and down the other. And, uh, uh, you know, another good example is the Cash Landrum case. I was in the office. Phone call came in from this lady from uh, Texas seeking help. She was uh, very upset, and her friend was in the hospital dying, and she related to me the entire incident that took place with the object in the sky and the fact that they had both, you know, looked like they had been sunburned and, and, and that kind of thing. And my first my first instinct was that this is a person who needs help. Let's refer them to a MUFON investigator up there. But the one thing I did tell her to do was see if the doctor can check her for radiation poisoning. Is that Dr. John Schusler by any chance? Yeah. Okay. I, I spoke to him years ago about this, but please continue. Well, you know, and that was the last I heard of it. And the next thing I know, it was exclusively a MUFON case. 
and it was never referred to them. They came to them and, and, and all of that. Well, we called MUFON from the office and said, look, you need to check this out. There's something not right here. Uh, from everything that I know and have learned over the years, this sounds very, very much like radiation poisoning. And uh, that was the last I heard of it. But after that, it was it was entirely MUFON. Uh, there was no mention of me, no mention of Afro or any of that kind of stuff. So if that gives you an indication as to, you know, just how people are when it comes to these kind of things. I remember that. And then poor lady died, uh, Vicki Landrum. She got really ill. Uh, the boy who's, who's grown up since, since then, Colby Landrum, I think his name was, he, he had a myriad health issues. I mean, this is some serious stuff. And it's compounded by the fact that you have all these egos and empires. And you have these near-do-wells who, it, it makes you wonder, not only on an individual basis, but on an organizational basis, who are these people really working for? Because there seems to be like a counterintelligence, internal security psyop aspect to, to some of their activities which i've come across i've come across personally this as well but but we've reached the end of a fascinating first segment bill if i may call you bill okay you know to our dear listeners out there uh if you like what we do if you believe what we do uh, please go to the cosmic switchboard.com sign up and become a member and we'll see you at the top of the next segment 